my uh, penchant for storytelling. I uh, have two stories that, li- that I'd like to tell you this morning. One is a tragedy. The other is a comedy in the original sense of a comedic drama, a comedic drama that has a, uh, a happy ending. The first story was, uh, was told a long time ago by a man named Aeschylus, a Greek playwright who lived in the 6th century B.C., and uh, he wrote, a, he wrote a, a play entitled Prometheus Bound. He said that once upon a time, the human race knew the precise date of their death. Uh, they had more than a vague sense of their mortality. The time of their death was a fixed date on the calendar. In other words, they knew their limits. And... Uh, uh, of course, knowing that sort of thing takes all the incentive out of life. Why go to school? Why marry? Why raise children? Why make money if you know the date of your death? To compound their problems, the gods really didn't care. They were engaged in their own racy escapades. And uh, they held all of the technology, all the skill, all the knowledge, everything that would uh, make man's life more meaningful and more valuable was in their hands. All the significant cards were held in their hand. There was one god by the name of Prometheus who uh, was compassionately concerned about the human race. And so he did three things that he thought would make their uh, their state better. Uh, in the first place, he, he took away their knowledge of the, of, of the precise date of their death so that, as Prometheus put it, they, they ceased foreseeing their doom. Uh, Secondly, he gave them a sort of vague hope that somehow, someway, everything was going to turn out all right. They didn't uh, know exactly how, but there was this uh, vague feeling that, that in the end, everything would be okay. And then third, he stole fire from the gods and he gave it to man. Now, you know what Prometheus got for his trouble. Those of you that remember the story know that he angered Zeus and Zeus bound him to a rock for eternity. And, and it is kind of a grisly turn to the story. By day, the vultures would devour his flesh, and by night, his flesh would be regenerated. And he became axiomatic for the expression of fate worse than death. That's, uh, that's what he got for his concern for the human race. Prometheus was bound for eternity. And, of course, man was left in this, in this helpless state where he, he had some vague sense of his mortality and, and some vague sense of hope. And he had a little bit of technology to make his life better. He could turn his thermostat up to 68 degrees, and he could live in any sort of climate. And uh, there were certain things about his life that were were good, but he was left with this sense of emptiness and and loss and meaninglessness. Now, that's a tragedy. Aeschylus intended it to be a tragedy. He wrote it that way. And it's our story. That's the story of the human race. Apart from Revelation... That's where we are. We have no hope. There's no meaning. We like to stave off thoughts of our death. We, we don't like to face the fact that one of these days the Grim Reaper is going to come around and knock on our door. We do everything we can to try to forget, but we really can't. We know that someday we're going to die. And yet at the same time, there's this vague sense that, that maybe everything will turn out all right. Maybe my children will, will be 
thankful. Maybe my children will be gratifying. Maybe my children will fulfill me in some way. Maybe my marriage will turn out better. Maybe someday my job will yield some uh, sense of achievement. Maybe, maybe. But in the end, there's always that sense of emptiness because Prometheus was bound. Now I want to tell you another story. And uh, as I said, this story is a comedy. It's the story of Hosea. It's found in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn there. That's the part of your uh, Bible that snaps, crackles, and pops when you open it. That's the Old Testament, the clean part of your Bible. It's too bad that we don't read it, read it more. There, the good news is storied and, and pictured for us in compelling ways. And one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of, of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who was called to live out his message in a, an extraordinary way. He, he, he lived it in his home. Hosea was called to a lifetime of heartache. He had a disastrous marriage, very, very unhappy marriage, and there's probably no unhappiness like the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. He lived at a time in Israel's history when they were very prosperous. They were known all over the uh, ancient Near East as uh, a place of culture and commerce. They controlled the trade routes. They were very influential. Their name, the name Israel, Omri Land it was called then, kept keeps turning up in the Assyrian documents. So we know that Israel was very prominent, but uh, the whole uh, state was in decline. There was a lot of drug and alcohol use, urban crime, domestic violence, political corruption. The nation was, was falling apart. And uh, it was in that situation that Hosea lived, and it was there that he, uh, he had this uh, domestic problem that he had to deal with. Uh, he married a young woman who apparently was a very beautiful young woman. Her name was Gomer. I always think of Gomer Pyle when I hear her name. <laughs> but I don't think she looked like Gomer Pyle. Uh, in Hebrew, Gomer means uh, completion or perfection. She must have been a, a very beautiful woman. She's described uh, in the book of Hosea as the daughter of Deblium, which is a, a Hebrew idiom for a daughter of... Uh, well, literally, it's a daughter of two fig cakes. Fig cakes or grape cakes, whatever they were, were a type of candy. So uh, the, the fact that she's a daughter of Diblam suggests that she was given over to sensuality. And, and uh, she was a hedonist, basically. She pursued pleasure. If she lived today, she'd uh, probably do a lot of partying and do a lot of cocaine. And, and she'd be very promiscuous, and she was. She's also described as a... As a woman of fornications, which suggests that uh, she was more than unfaithful, she, she was experimental in her sex life, constantly unfaithful to Hosea. He kept loving her, he kept reaching out to her, he kept trying to get her to come home, kept expressing his love to her, and she, she had one lover after another, was repeatedly unfaithful to him. They had three children. One of them was named Jezreel which is an odd sort of name. Uh, it, actually, it's worse than naming your uh, kid Sue. Uh, Jezreel had very unpleasant associations in Israel. It was a place where uh, some years prior to Hosea, there had been a terrible massacre. Jehu, was one, who was one of the kings of Israel, had uh, slaughtered 
Uh, all of the sons of Ahab actually assassinated Ahab, who was the king of, of the northern kingdom, and Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and all 70 of, uh, of Ahab's descendants, all the royal family, all the priests, all the nobility, blood uh, flowed in the fields of Jezreel. It'd be an odd name to give a kid. It'd be like calling him Melai, I suppose, today. Wherever he went, all of these terrible associations would, would come back. It's a tip-off that there's something more to this story than just a story of a difficult marriage. We have to understand what Hosea is trying to say. They had two other children. Both of them were illegitimate. There's a little girl that he named uh, No Compassion. The word for compassion is, comes from the Hebrew word for womb that would suggest that uh, Gomer rejected the child, walked away from the family, deserted them, left the child in Hosea's care. And then they had another child that they called Lami, which is just the Hebrew word for not my people or not mine. The little child was, uh, was illegitimate, and it would be, frankly, like calling a child little bastard. And, and everywhere he went, everyone would know that he was illegitimate. He, not only did he bear the stigma of illegitimate birth, he bore the name. It seems so odd that uh, you would do this to your kids. Hosea kept reaching out to... Uh, Gomer and things just got worse and worse. She went from bad to worse and she finally ended up in some pimp's stable as a common street prostitute, a hooker. And uh, drug uh, addicted and disease ridden, wasted and and worn, she uh, finally ended up on the streets. And I want to read what what Hosea did. If you have a Bible, turn with me to chapter 3. It's a remarkable incident. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love again this woman who is your friend. That's the term that's often used in the Old Testament, a term of endearment for one's wife. Go once more and love this woman who is your friend even though she's an adulteress. So Hosea says, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels and 10 bushels of barley. Slave price in those days was 30 shekels. Hosea didn't have that kind of money. He couldn't scrape it together. All he could find was 15 shekels, and so he paid half of her price in in silver, and he paid half of her price in, in produce, and he bought her back. Then I said to her, You will live quietly with me for many days. There is to be no more harlotry or making love to anyone else, and I, for my part, will wait for you. She was bought with a price. She cost Jose everything he had. I'm sure Hosea's neighbors thought he was, he was uh, insane. They must have thought, What kind of crazy love is this that this man... Year after year, kept pursuing this woman and and kept loving her. What they didn't realize is that there was something more to this story than a a domestic uh, crisis or drama. This was a greater drama. This was a cosmic drama. It depicted God's love for Israel. And while this was going on, Hosea kept preaching. He he would refer to his family life, and then he would would apply the, the symbol to God and God's love for his people because Hosea played out the part of God and 
And Gomer played out the part of, of his people. If you want to see an example of his sermonizing, just read on in verse 4 of chapter 3. For the children of Israel shall live quietly for many days without a king, without a prince, without sacrifice, without a sacred stone, without idols or wooden images. He's talking about the exile when Israel was taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. Then the time will come when the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And in the end, they will come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness. It was this uncanny, crazy love of God that that would draw Israel back to, back to the Lord. If we read on into chapter 4, there's a, a, something of an indictment here of the people of Israel. Hear what the Lord says, you people of Israel, for the Lord has a quarrel with the inhabitants of the land. There's no honesty, nor compassion, nor knowledge of God, but an outbreak of cursing, murder, stealing, and adultery, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is why the land is withered. And everyone who lives in it has lost heart. See, Israel was like, uh, was like Gomer. They trolloped their way through, through life, and eventually they ended up empty and they lost heart. G.K. Chesterton points out, misery is not when, when people are tired of doing evil, it's when they're tired of doing good, when there's nothing left anymore to do, and there's nothing but, but emptiness. That's where Israel found themselves. They, uh, they lost heart. And so do we. You know, we're, we're made for God. We're made to love Him. That's what we're for. And we've lost the greatest love of all because we've turned our back on God and we go our own way. And, and God, out of love for us, lets us go. And we come to the end of ourselves and we discover that, that we were meant for God and we can only find our meaning when we know Him and, and when we love Him. Now, if we go back to chapter 2... Uh, Hosea does some sermonizing on God's character. Hosea appealed to his uh, children. Put your mother on trial. Plead with her. For she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Tell her to wash the paint from her face and the seductions from between her breasts. And then in verse 14, see now, I will be the one who attracts her and, and brings her into, into a desert place and speaks gently to her heart. From there I will give her her vineyards and, and turn the valley of bitterness into a pass which is bright with promise. And there she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as she did at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. You see what, she, what he's saying? He's applying... Gomer's uh, uh, adulteries to Israel, and he's saying Israel is like that. That's the way you are, but I'm going I'm to turn your bitterness into an occasion for joy. I'm, uh, my love is going to draw you back, back to myself. That's the way God loves us, and that's what we have to understand. Despite our unfaithfulness, he, he loves us like you wouldn't believe. Brennan Manning, in one of his books, captures uh, something of that love. He describes it this way. The experience of God's tenderness was uh, mirrored to me quite unobtrusively at a couple's 45th wedding anniversary celebration. The husband and wife quietly withdrew some time during the festivities. I wasn't looking for them as I passed the sheltered alcove. I wasn't eavesdropping, just mesmerized. They were sitting on a love seat with only an overhead light shining directly on the man's face. He was staring intently at his spouse. 
He knew everything about her there was to know, her strengths and weaknesses, virtues and character defects, her moodiness and temper tantrums, her sense of humor and sense of insecurity, her nagging and her magnanimity. Nothing remained hidden. The expression in his eyes conveyed unconditional acceptance, unbearable forgiveness, infinite patience, and tender love. Not a word was exchanged. She sighed, then cried, and they embraced. He continues, My faith comes from a profound awareness that God loves me like that, just as I am and not as I should be. That he loves me beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. That he loves me in the morning sun and in the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, limit, or breaking point. That no matter what I do, he can't stop loving me. Now that's the point of the book of Hosea, God can't stop loving you. We, like Gomer, take all of the resources that God gives to us and we prostitute them on ourselves. We use our bodies for self-gratification. We use our minds to erect arguments against the existence of God. We, we don't even give God the time of day, though he's the one that causes every, every beat of our heart. And he continues to love us, and it's that love that draws us back to him. You're asking, what does this have to do with Easter? Well, I want you to turn to chapter 6 because it has very much to do with Easter. At the end of chapter 5, Hosea says, speaking as God, I will go back once more to my place until they admit their guilt and seek my face. And in their misery they will search for, for me, saying, Come, let us go back to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and he will bind us up. In a day or two, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will set us on our feet to live beneath his care. So let us know the Lord. Let us be determined to know him, for he will come back to us, or he will come to us, literally, as surely as the dawn, as certain as the sun comes up tomorrow morning. The Lord will respond to our response. As surely as the rain falls in winter and as showers which water the earth in spring. I thought that was a very apropos verse for this morning. As sure as spring rain, as sure as the sun coming up, the Lord will respond. You draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And it's this phrase on the third day, he'll set us on our feet that, that struck me because I realized as I read this, this, this book again this past week, that, that was what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians 15. When he said, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. You know that, um, that chapter, those of you in, in our growth group studied it this past week. It's the premier passage on the resurrection of Christ. Paul says, I, I want you to know the good news that we apostles preached. I preach it and all the apostles preach it. This is the foundation of the... Uh, of the gospel, these are the fundamental elements of it. These are the things you have to believe in order, in order to, to participate in the good news. The first is that Christ died according to the scriptures. 
Those scriptures are the Old Testament. That's the only scripture Paul had. He didn't have a New Testament when he wrote those words. New Testament, portions of it had been written, but it wasn't collected as a New Testament. Paul says, Christ died according to the scriptures. And he was thinking of a number of passages in the Old Testament. The, 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 the law provided a lamb, as you know, to be sacrificed for sin. The sacrificer would place his hands on the head of a lamb and he would uh, confess his sins. And then he would take the knife and he would, he would kill the animal, slaughter the animal. And then the, the priest would, would sacrifice it for his sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That, that event is pictured in the Old Testament. Christ died according to the Scripture. Psalm 22 is another passage in the Old Testament that, that depicts the crucifixion in, very graphic, in a very graphic way. Isaiah 53 pictures our Lord's uh, sacrifice for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was numbered among transgressors. As you know, there were two malefactors that were crucified, two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. That's all in the Old Testament. He came according to the Old Testament. And John, looking back, said that I saw it. I, I, I saw him on the cross. I saw the blood and water come out of his side. I knew that he had actually died according to the Old Testament. And secondly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was buried according to the Scriptures. Where does it say that in the Old Testament? Well, in Isaiah 53, uh, one, one of the favors that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us is to help clarify a couple of passages in Isaiah 53. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they jumped back some 1,100 years in terms of texts. The, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were 1,100 years older than any other Old Testament text that we had at that time, and we found that the texts were almost exactly alike, except for two or three very, very important uh, changes. And one of them is in Isaiah 53, where, where as Isaiah said, he was, it, it was the intent of those who killed him to, uh, to bury him in a mass grave with the wicked, but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And if you read the uh, New American Standard Bible of that verse, it says uh, a rich man's deaths, which has never made any sense to anyone. But uh, with the addition of one Hebrew letter, a little Hebrew bait, the word was changed to tomb, and all of a sudden it fell into place. He was buried in, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah wrote that in the 8th century before Christ. Paul says he was buried according to the Scriptures. And then Paul says he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The resurrection of Christ is, uh, is mentioned in a number of places in the Old Testament. In Psalm 16, for example, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. But uh, nowhere else in the Old Testament does it say on the third day except here in, in Hosea. Hosea said on the third day he will stand us on our feet. And, and Paul says... He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, uh, the word Hosea is the old form for the Hebrew Yeshua, or Joshua, which is the Hebrew form of the Greek form, Jesus, which is Jesus. So Hosea equals Joshua equals Jesus. And as Hosea, you know, the Old Testament is full of these little clues. It's like reading an Agatha Christie uh, movie, uh, novel. You know, you 
little clue embedded in the text, and you don't see it at the time. You read right past it, and later looking back, you say, oh, that was the key clue. And this is the sort of thing you find in Hosea. This is the clue that on the third day he would set us on our feet, and that's precisely what our Lord Jesus did. Prometheus was bound, but our Lord was not. That, that's why the story of Hosea and the story of the gospel is a comedy, because it has a, it has a good ending. Here we are, like, like Gomer, desperately far from God, going our own way, living our own life, doing our own thing, careless about God. We couldn't care less what God thought. And he keeps loving us, and he keeps loving us, and he keeps loving us, until finally he took the initiative. That's what we call the incarnation. He came and he lived among us. He died as we died, according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures, and he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Prometheus was bound, but our Lord Jesus was not. Our Lord came, and he conquered. I want to leave you just with this one thought. The whole story of the gospel, our Lord's crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, is simply another story of our Lord's love for us. Despite our unfaithfulness, he loves us. The Hosea who lived out his, his domestic strife, his problems, his heartache in this book is the Lord Jesus who, who lived out that same heartache in this life. He came and he just kept reaching out to us. And as a demonstration of that love for us, he died for us. He was buried because that's what you do with dead things. You put them away. But that grave could not hold him. And he broke out on Easter morning, our resurrected Savior. He was not bound. I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We come without any merit of our own. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling and we say, Lord Jesus, save me. Thank you. For dying for me, thank you. For paying the price for my sin. And God, seeing the price that he paid, accepted it. That's what the resurrection means. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call the Savior mine. Will you do that this morning? If you've never called him yours, he loves you. He wants you to be his. Let's pray. Nineteen hundred years ago, our Lord came 
and said, I love you in the most graphic way possible. That, that love was demonstrated on a cross. As Paul puts it, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for me. Our Lord is like Hosea, we're like Gomer. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He saw, he came, he conquered. Will you give him back the love that you owe? Will you say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for loving me. Take this life with all of its distortions, all of its addictions, all of the detours, the wrong turns, all the things that I've done and said in my past life, in this past week. Lord, just take me as I am and make me what you want me to be. Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for loving me. Lord, we come to a passage like this and uh, we're humbled and awed by the recognition that despite what we are and what we've done, you love us. You've always loved us. You always will love us. Thank you for this opportunity to respond to that love and, and to say in response that we want you to be our Lord. We want to submit to your leadership. We want to slip into that yoke with you because we know that you bear the yoke that your burden is easy, your yoke is light. Thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for taking us out of our, our desperate, meaningless life. Thank you for giving us eternal life, delivering us from the dread and fear of death and replacing it with hope and with a future, an eternal future. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.